0: Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We're excited to have you this week. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. where We talk everything conservation, education, fascination. My name is CJ, and I'm joined by my two good friends and co-hosts i'm britney
1: i think that makes me matt
0: it does it does okay. it does make you Brittany and yeah. then you matt wait what i was
1: just i was just going off the picture I I that we mad. have well then why'd you say you're Brittany?
2: <laughs> i just like to be a little confusing mix it up a little bit and i'm matt um what are
0: you guys been up to this week
2: well as of the week that we are recording i'm gearing up to go to my first renaissance fair so I'm pretty, pretty stoked, pretty excited. Um, I've never been to one and we are we're, de- we're, we're going all decked out. We're, we're going to be in costume and it'll be a good time.
0: That sounds super fun. Awesome. And Matt, what, what have you been up to this week, pal? I've
1: um, been doing a lot of moth pinning. That's been kind of fun. I'm getting decently good at it too. Really excited about that. And then on top of that, I also got to meet a pretty big entomologist. His name is uh, Art Evans. He's in Virginia, he used to work at the LA Natural History Museum. And he has written like a crap ton of field guides on um, Beatles, most recently, Beatles of Western North America. Um, he's a good buddy of my professor here, the guy who I've worked with, Dave Russell, the man, the myth, the legend. And so I got to spend a very long, very fun day with all of them on Saturday, and it was just a blast. It was really cool. He had this really cool radio segment on NPR, actually, speaking of radio, and uh, called What's Bugging You. And so we'll link that actually in the description below because they currently have six animated shorts made from the episodes that they did and they're fascinating and they're really well done and so i really enjoyed watching them and you know i figured people might as well there's one on the Luna moth which is like <laughs> nice
0: that's wonderful we'll have to link those in our blog post thanks matt um i've been okay this week really not too much just uh enjoying the crisper fall weather um uh we're officially in november so very egg sighting. I don't know why I'm an egg pun there. There's no no reason for it. it Does
2: you like eggnog?
0: In
1: I don't, November, actually don't like eggnog. No, I like eggnog. I don't
2: like. I used eggnog to is love eggnog pleasant. as a I, I, kid.
0: If people like eggnog, leave it in the leave it in the leave us a review saying I like eggnog. <laughs> well, with all of our fun uh, activities out of the way this week, let's jump into our first segment, which is the creature feature. <laughs> so this week for our creature feature we have spared no expense really spectacular spared no expense it's one you might not know about but one you definitely might have indulged in a fishy delicacy this week's creature feature the chilean sea bass is known for its rich taste because of its appeal in food the bass has become a key point in sustainable fishing and agriculture but before we get into all of that, what even is the Chilean sea bass? Actually named the Patagonian toothfish it's a species of toothy fish native to Chile, which is how it gets its colloquial name. It's a deepwater fish mostly found at depths of a thousand meters. They play an important role, acting both as a predator and acting as prey. They're primarily piscivores, eating whatever fish they can find and catch. Sperm whales, squid and seals eat the bass to keep the population stable. With an increased demand for the fish though, populations began to decline and disrupt the ocean ecosystem. To combat that, fishing limits have been put in place. These limits fluctuate based on the season and population tests of the bass. Population of the Chilean sea bass is compared to populations of their predators and their prey, taking a holistic approach that allows for all of the ecosystem to stay balanced. An approach like this actually helps with conservation, of many species, not just the Chilean sea bass, and ultimately works out for every animal
1: involved. So normally I don't cut in on creature features, but I just think this is too funny to bring up. I also wanted to bring it up because it comes from a shared experience that regular guest Jack Cross and I have to Miami. So Jack Cross and I both did our undergrad at Miami, and I think we had like two years of overlap, and we met his senior year. And we met in an ichthyology class ichthyology being the study of fish and we were in the same class it was a lot of fun you know we got to go sane fishing and stuff like that we also learned about this fish because it's a really weird example of how sometimes you know when we get into unsustainable aquaculture the nefarious things that happen from when things go awry so cj mentioned that it's actually you know the patagonian toothfish and that's completely true there's technically no such thing as a sea bass the sea bass is not taxonomically a bass at all. And literally the reason why they take toothfish and name it a sea bass is because it's more marketable of a fish to consume. It's literally the only reason that it's called that. And so in order to sell more of them, because it's really good taste in fish, in order to get people to try it, they changed the name because toothfish completely would flop at market. Can you imagine going into, you know, your favorite seafood shanty or something like that and being, yes, I'll have the toothfish, please. It sounds gross. It just does, right? It doesn't sound appealing. And so the markets figured that out. And so that's where we get sea bass today. It's super, super intriguing. And that's the only reason I bring it up is because Jack and I both learned that in that class.
0: Yeah. The story of the Patagonian toothfish and the, is it the Antarctic toothfish as well?
1: Yeah, that's the other one. There's technically two species that filter into the Chilean sea bass, which is real wild.
0: (laughs) The story of these two fish kind of filtering into the Chilean sea bass is really interesting. And at the top, I mentioned um, we spared no expense because the first time I've ever heard of Chilean sea bass was actually in the film Jurassic Park. That was the food they were feeding the, the guests at Jurassic Park was Chilean sea bass because it's just so expensive. It's a very expensive cut of fish. And we uh, spared no expense with today's creature feature. Matt, you touched on sustainable aquaculture there. We'll dive into that more later in this episode. But first, let's swim into some current events.
2: All right. Well, so for my current event. This week, it comes from Science Daily, and the title reads, Ecology of Fishing Jaguars, Rare Social Interactions. So throughout like the whole article, it talks about how these researchers at Oregon State University um, and a team of international scientists were looking at, the, at a population of jaguars in Brazil and they had found, they were specifically looking into their diet and what their diet kind of all consisted of. And they were looking at fecal matter. And they were, when they did all of this study and all this fecal matter, they found that the majority of these jaguar's diets were coming from water organisms. So whether that be fish or whatever, there's a, a large portion of their diet was coming from the water and it actually had said that it was they the the jaguars diet in total were pretty much dominated by three groups it was 55 percent reptiles fish made up 46 percent and mammals made up 11 and um, they noticed that because these jaguars were jackpotting on this fish diet and um, small reptiles that were kind of near the water, they were engaging in new behaviors that hadn't really been studied before. So they saw that there was an increase in um, activity. There was an, but particularly there was an increase in so like social interactions and activities between jaguars. And the article pretty much talks about the fact that um, they. Jaguars didn't need to conserve energy and they didn't need to kind of lay low because there was a plethora of food available and they could go and play and just have regular like like you know interactions with others and I just found it from from a animal behavior standpoint really fascinating I always find it really fascinating when um, you can get when you can see new behaviors evolving based off of just different environmental changes. And just, it was a nice animals are really cool and unexpected.
0: I love hearing about jaguars. So any fun current event about them, I really appreciate. Thanks for sharing that, Brittany. My current event for this week comes from sciencedaily.com. And it is a research article titled, photosynthesizing algae injected into the blood vessels of tadpoles supply oxygen to their brains. And it's a really fascinating article talking about how scientists took uh, algae, which photosynthesizes to create energy for plants, uh, like basically takes light from the sun to create energy for plants, and injected it into frog tadpoles to create a new way of breathing for these frogs so in a really fascinating turn of events you know many people know about frogs uh, metamorphosis so they go from tadpoles all the way up to adult frogs and in that course of their lifetime they have a bunch of different breathing techniques so they can breathe through gills when they're tadpoles they breathe through their lungs when they're adults and basically through their entire life they breathe through their skin that's why they're hypersensitive to a lot of chemicals and waters and things like that
1: I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the freaking frogs gay do you understand that turn the friggin' frogs gay serious
0: um, crap but now german scientists have discovered and developed another method that allows the tadpoles to quote breathe by introducing algae into their bloodstream to supply oxygen the method was developed and presented on october 13th in the journal Eye science and it it actually provided enough oxygen to effectively rescue neurons in the brains of oxygen deprived tadpoles, which is so incredibly fascinating. um The algae actually produced so much oxygen that they could bring nerve cells back to life, if you will, says senior author Hans Stracke of the Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich. For, ex- for many people, it sounds like science fiction, but after all, it's just the right combination of biological schemes. And biological principles. To explore the possibility, the team injected green algae or cyanobacteria into the tadpole's hearts, and with each heartbeat, the algae inched through the blood vessels, eventually reaching the brain, turning the translucent tadpole bright green. And it's really fascinating to to see this as like a new development um, in the uses of algae and the development of frogs. So definitely keep an eye on this kind of stuff. And I just found this super super cool
1: heck yeah so going on i've got another cool super duper cool current event it's about beer so nat geo um, published an article october 15th 2021 titled how to brew a greener beer and it kind of details a lot of stuff that you might not have known about the beer industry so beer as a process is really actually not super duper environmentally friendly especially a lot of those bigger beer companies the ones that you know like Bud, Light, Miller, Coors, stuff like that, who are shipping all over the world. Um, For a single eight-ounce serving of beer, it's about 20 gallons of water to produce. And for a five-ounce serving of wine, it's about 30. And then, you know, you have all sorts of shipping stuff that goes on, you know, especially with things that, like, you know, tequila's only made in Mexico, scotch in Scotland, or bourbon in Kentucky. So anyone who wants bourbon, say in illinois or i don't know like china or something like that they're getting it from kentucky and so all in all there's a lot that goes into the making of beer liquor wine all that fun stuff and so scientists are looking at right now especially in the midst of major major emissions releasing and driving global climate change scientists are starting to look at hey how do we fix these problems and a couple of them are outlined in this article that i've got um here so first off they're talking about how to hone in on bringing down the cost of transportation ecologically you know how can we better transport things so that it's a bit more ecologically and potentially even economically cost effective and patrick Tatera, when he was up hiking at the top of a mountain in utah said he really wanted a beer. And knowing that it was about mostly water, about 95%, he decided to look into, hey, how can I dehydrate this beer, transport it, and then rehydrate it? And this is the basically the exigence for the Sustainable Beverage Technologies Company, also known as SBT. This is because water, like I said, takes a lot of water to produce beer, and that's not just for growing the hops or anything like that that we'll go into in a little bit. It also is mostly water itself. And so when you transport beer in full, you're transporting the whole entire kit and caboodle, when in reality, what Tatera found is that you can highly concentrate the beer, which is essentially by going over the brewing process over and over and over again a couple times, Send a product that's super duper highly concentrated, and then wherever it's sent to, they can add water, carbonation, they can add more alcohol, and then it can be sold as beer. And right now, it's still kind of kicking off a little bit, but this kind of transport method would be super duper ecologically efficient compared to what we're doing right now. Because imagine being able to transport about one-sixth of the same product just by rehydrating it. It's a super-duper easy way of saving some energy. And then the other thing is that hops, which are what give beer the flavor, you know, the little bit of bitterness, the aroma as well. They're a plant that goes into the brewing process. Hops take a crap ton of water to grow. In fact, growing one pound takes about 300 to 450 gallons of water. And so Charles Denby, a postdoctoral researcher in UC Berkeley, decided he wanted to genetically engineer yeast in order to make that hoppy flavor. He was actually doing genetically engineering yeast to make biofuels and then brewing beer at the same time, and he was like, "Hey, what if I could combine these?" which I think is really funny. And so what he did was he found the chemical compounds that would create the kind of hoppy flavor and it's a compound called terpenes. and then genetically engineered a strain of yeast that would do so and it was super duper successful so much so that in blind taste tests they actually found that the yeast made a hoppier beer than the hops themselves which is super duper interesting and since a lot of people like hoppy beers this is actually really really important this hasn't taken off yet again because you know when you have ingrained societal methods usually people are pretty weary to but these two methods could be utterly consequential and really really change the game when we talk about conserving energy in a field that we don't usually look at as energy consuming right we don't really think about what goes into our wine and our beer and our liquor but all of those come from crops bourbon comes you know whiskey from corn a lot of times Beer coming from hops, like I said, wine coming from grapes and other fruits and stuff like that. That's all agriculture. And if we can sustainably produce these in a different way, next time you crack open a cold one, you don't have to feel so guilty about it. I
0: love that you shared that current event, Matt. I'm I'm not surprised you were the one to share that current event, but I'm thankful for you sharing it regardless.
1: It's in line.
0: <laughs> it's definitely in character, and we appreciate mm-hmm. that. To, to continue in character, I know you love... Uh, And you're a big fish boy, Matthew. So we're going to talk more about fish later in this episode, actually in our next segment. So let's move into it. Time for our main topic. So today we have an interview with Ryan McHugh. Ryan's going to join us in just after after the tone here. And uh, he's going to share all about his experiences with aquaculture. So we'll talk about what aquaculture is, what it means, And, um, yeah, well, let's, let's let Ryan explain it. Alrighty. So we are here now with Ryan McHugh. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know we've been talking for a while to get you on and you've been a big fan of the podcast, so thanks for being on. Um, we're here to talk about aquaculture, but before we do that, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself?
3: Hi, yeah, I'm Ryan McHugh, uh, I use the pronouns he, him. I currently work in the aquaculture industry, and I have a decent background in in education and a little bit of fisheries management as well, so we can talk a lot about that and seafood sustainability. That's
0: fantastic. Thanks, Ryan. Um, So just give us a brief introduction, because I know I know a very little bit. I know Matt maybe knows a little bit more, but give us an idea as to what aquaculture is.
3: Yeah, so aquaculture is really just the, you know, essentially farming of any aquatic uh, organism, whether it be kelp, seaweed, sea snails, conch, oysters, all the way to, you know, large pelagic fish, like large jacks, such as amber jacks, or uh, fish in the genus Cereola or salmon, or any sort of fish in between. Um, and encompasses a wide variety of purposes, uh, ranging from food production to even human medical research as well. And it's really kind of grown a lot in recent years. Um, You you know, anyone who's owned a pet fish in their lifetime has been conducting aquaculture that technically falls under the aquaculture category. So anyone in, in, in the tropical fish hobby has you know, you're an aquaculturist, and you know, it's uh it's a kind of a broad-ranging term, but when you know, a lot of people have actually participated in it, whether they know it or not.
1: Well, I guess it's kind of cool to consider myself an aquaculturist, I must say. But I also am someone who admittedly loves to indulge in seafood. And I know there are a lot of people out there who do as well. And one of the biggest things that people are talking about right now is the preservation of these stock. Um, in these fisheries going forward. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is going on right now with fisheries and then um, what are some of the techniques that are maybe being done to kind of support that business right now?
3: Absolutely. So I guess the best place to start uh, with that would be basically kind of going back to the history of fisheries. Um, I mean, seafood has always been a huge, important part of, you know, humanities, culture. Uh, anywhere you go, you know, whether it be Europe or Asia or anywhere in the world, it's it's always been a huge part of people's cultures, people's diets, uh, in some cases even their religions. And you know, growing towards today, fisheries have actually become under a lot of pressure, just simply doing uh, due to not having the ability to keep up with the demand, um, just because more and more people are eating food, seafood every year. And so the oceans can only sustain so much seafood sustainability really started with the, the big kind of push for it. it started back in the late 70s, mid, mid 80s with uh, the Atlantic Cod collapse um, off of the East Coast of the US and Canada. You know, that was kind of the first big realization that, you know, s- seafood isn't unlimited. And people need to, you know, watch out for what they're, you know, take how much they're taking out or what they're eating, because the whole area's economy was based on this one fish. And then like less than five years, everyone, almost everyone lost their job. There was nothing left. And it really kind of cratered that whole area for a while, but, you know, it's come back some, but the bright side of it is that, you know, it opened up a whole new door to a lot of different, uh, industries such as aquaculture and the realization that, you know, fisheries management and aquaculture go hand-in-hand in, hand in conserving and protecting wild wild populations of animals. Uh, even fish that aren't eaten or aren't popular uh, as a food source are j- just as important to
2: so you talked a lot about sustainability and and how important that is moving forward. How does the average person that might not know a ton about aquaculture? How do we know what's sustainable and what is it? What are the things that you would look for that you would know things to being sustainable?
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, there's actually a lot of help helpful tools uh, for the average consumer. I'm um, just like any other person, you know. A lot of people like to eat seafood and it's really good really tasty and you know it's it's actually healthy, really healthy for people too so it's really important and there's actually a number of ways that you can do that uh you know by simply looking when you buy seafood at 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 a grocery store looking for certain symbols whether it be msc certified or best aquaculture practices or aquaculture sustainability council uh, certified. There's a number of different brandings and um, kind of certification processes that wild fisheries as well as aquaculture facilities have to go through in order to get their product approved and certified. One of the uh, ways that I like to use the most is actually an app that was created by the Monterey Bay Aquarium called Seafood Watch. Uh, They have a website too that's kind of my biggest suggestion because it encompasses a wide variety of fish that in and other non-fish like shellfish and even I think a lot of sushi. So some of that isn't necessarily just fish, but, um, it makes it easy to read and, you know, it's on your phone. So, you know, you can just pull it out and look at it, you know, almost within less than a minute and know what you need to look for and, where you know what it's being caught with or where it's grown and that can really make it all easier a lot easier on the consumer and allow people to be able to feel better about what they're buying and what they're eating and what they're putting their money towards to supporting especially when it comes to wild fisheries because currently a lot of fisheries are becoming more and more overfished or facing more and more pressure due to a number of things such as climate change or pollution. It's actually been people have been finding out that a lot of wild fisheries are actually being limited by climate change, almost more now than sustainable fishing, because sustainable fishing has become so much of a focus that now people are realizing well, the fish aren't where they used to be because the water temperature is changing, you know, they can't live where they used to live. So these people now have to go farther out to catch less fish and they, they they can't do it. They can't make their lot. Their living, you know, has changed. So the seafood and the seafood watch app does a really really good job of breaking that down in an easy way. To, but also, there's other ones that you can look at just right on the bags. They're little, usually like a little blue circle. Dolphin safe is a popular one for tuna. So any sort of canned tuna, you can usually try and find a dolphin safe kind of market marking. Um, which typically means that when, uh, wild tuna are caught, the most common way of doing that is with a large net called a seine, where they kind of just drag a whole net around a school of tuna. And then almost like a purse, they, t- they, they kind of basically pull it shut at the end and b- capture them in a bag, essentially. Um, and in the past, lots of fishermen would set those nets around schools of dolphins because, the dolphins could find the tuna better than they could but that obviously you know obviously was not a good thing for the dolphins and re- resulted in a lot of dolphin deaths uh, as well as other marine mammal deaths too so nowadays a lot of most of most is actually caught dolphin safe but anytime you're using a big net net like that that's very indiscriminate and can have a lot of bycatch so those are things to take into account too but you know Any sort of effort to prevent bycatch and prevent the accidental uh, harming of wildlife that is endangered is, you know, definitely a big step forward.
0: Yeah, that's a great recommendation there, Ryan, about the the Seafood Watch app. I know in our our shared collective past, we've talked a little bit about Seafood Watch. So Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I feel like that's a great resource because everybody around the world eats fish. It's like a thing that connects us all over the world. So yeah, definitely good to uh, make sure we're doing sustainable things there. Mm -hmm. Um, When you were talking there, it kind of reminded me of a conversation that you and I had, Ryan, um, many, many months ago about Mm -hmm. kind of the different lives of maybe like a wild caught fish versus like a farmed fish. Can you talk us through that? Like, what is the difference?
3: Yeah. So uh, the aquaculture industry has actually come for seafood consumption, I should say, to clarify that. It's come a long way in a lot of areas, but for for food consumption purposes it's really kind of a new industry in the kind of western world the first aquaculture for food production really started back in you know asia uh, with carp and it, then it kind of spread to the middle east where they would catch you know whatever fish they they liked and then they would throw them in their moats and then whatever fish survived they would eat during their sieges or whatever because that's what they had but Aquaculture, girls. One of the oldest forms of aquaculture is comes from uh, Hawaii, actually, um, where they would just simply close off an area of the bay and grow whatever was in those tide pools. But nowadays, aquaculture has become much more technologically advanced. There's a lot of mon- electronic monitoring, all sorts of different water quality parameters and stuff. And so, really, the the life of a wild caught fish and an aquacultured an aqua- fish is significantly different. I mean, aside from simply growing and spending their entire lives in two completely different places. Um, you know, they actually probably have better water quality for the most part in a lot of current aquaculture settings. Um, because people can taste the differences in the quality of the water that the fish is grown. in. so if a place is not growing their, their, their product in a properly maintained water water and uh, the, the fish are living in squalor essentially, you know, people are going to be able to taste that and they're not going to be able to sell their product well. So um, that alone is propelling the health and wellness of those animals as well. But you know, there's also a number of other in- innovations that have come so far. And then, you know, ranging from their eggs, a lot of places can actually control the spawning cycles of the fish that they grow by simply changing the water temperature whenever they need to. So for example, is uh, Cobia is a fish that is from the, the Western Atlantic uh, Gulf of Mexico area, kind of the Caribbean. It's not an extremely common food source worldwide, but It's a a growing fish in popularity that you can uh, find in a lot of seafood stores like Publix, actually uh, in the Florida area, in the Gulf Coast states. And, you know, these fish breed based on the water temperature and so do a number of other fish, but I'm gonna use these fish as an example. And a lot of places now can actually just, you know, whenever they need them to spawn, they can change the water temperature to essentially turn them on or turn them off. That's kind of oversimplifying it. But they can actually improve egg quality by changing the water parameters and stuff and making mimicking the fish's natural life cycle uh, in climate and you know, the seasonality of it. Um, and then going to the egg, egg production, you know, that's, that's a huge part of it. And so um, if you don't have high-quality eggs that aren't in good shape to survive, you're not gonna have viable, you know, business because they're all gonna die, and you're gonna have a lot of issues with animal welfare as well. So, um, people a lot of put, you know, the biggest thing is artificially pumping up oxygen levels so that the eggs have a lot of uh, oxygen to develop more than they actually would have in the wild, and then monitoring the density uh, the these fish typically live in higher densities than they would in the wild. But um, because of the technological advancements that humans have created and discovered and found out, by living in a lot higher densities than they might in the wild, they can actually still live in better water quality than they would out in the ocean, pretty much their whole lives and grow faster, uh, grow stronger, grow bigger. And in a lot of cases, uh, places that have put a lot of effort into the genetics and uh, selection of their fish, they can actually um, get them to grow more efficient meat-wise and produce more uh, biomass for consumption. So they're actually more efficient and more sustainable than a lot of seafood, you know wild-caught fish. I'm
0: just chuckling at efficient there.
3: Sorry, that was an unintentional pun, but I guess really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) No
3: apologies.
1: Well, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, bring it close to home right now. Um, So a lot of fisheries management in the past, from what I understand, because I'm unfortunately getting into some theory-based ecology, but a lot of fisheries management has been kind of predicated upon The notion of this sustainability and one thing that has come into it is a process that is used uh, known as modeling essentially there's a bunch of factors that vary upon life history and all sorts of stuff that goes into this theory-based model and you can project outwards theoretically what your population will look like um, depending on a certain subset of circumstances that occur that can be changed and altered to kind of reflect what the population might look like in this set of conditions versus this and such and such same thing we do with climate right that's what climate projections are based upon too as well and i was wondering you know what that field currently looks like it's been a while since i've looked at that and if you could kind of maybe go in to some just a conversation about that because i'd like to pick your brain and hear what you have to say about that
3: yeah absolutely um it's not the kind of main focus of what i studied when i was in college but um, when I was in school, a lot of fisheries management was uh, trending towards uh, a lot of, as you said, kind of programming and modeling and to- growing towards instead of shifting away from uh, single species modeling towards the whole ecosystem of that species, uh, because, you know, nowadays they have the technology and the ability to do that. And you know, computers now are able to handle not only those models, but models more complex than that. It does incorporate a huge amount of uncertainty and variables. But, you know, there's a lot of really smart people that work really hard to, you know, make fisheries more sustainable. And with the work that they do, they have been able to make a lot of ground and headway on creating, you know, entire ecosystems in these models and can put out numbers that, you know, mimic what we see today and project those into the future. And and nowadays, a lot of uh, management agencies, such as the government rely heavily on those, because that's the best information that we have. And it's the most accurate. And it's, you know, it's going to be the biggest benefit for not only the ecosystem, but people as well, because no one has, you know, no one wants to see, you know, the oceans fall apart. It's, it's actually the last thing anyone wants, because if the oceans fall apart, uh, every single per every single person on this planet relies on the ocean in some way or another. And, you know, if we don't take care of them, humanity as a whole is going to suffer. So it's a vested interest that everyone has. And there's a lot of money that has been going towards and in the recent years. I mean, there's still a lot of effort that needs to go into it, but it's made a lot of headway in the recent years. And it's fascinating stuff that I don't even understand. And it was too complex for me to to, to fully understand all of it. But some of the some of the smartest people I know do that stuff. And it's it's simply fascinating, which is a huge theme here on the Pretty Bunch podcast. So. You know, we 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 do love home.
0: fascination here. We do. <laughs> it, can yeah. it tell you listen, Ryan. Too. Can tell you listen. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly.
2: <laughs> you were just talking about um, how everything kind of affects us, and can you kind of explain more? You were talking a little bit earlier about how fishing and people have had to kind of change their own livelihood to be able to go go out further to fish for less is basically mm-hmm. kind of how you put that. What are yeah. some like economic impacts? Cause I'm sure that has, um, has some, but what are some more of the economic impacts that, that, that aquaculture has on, on everybody, um, everybody's lives?
3: Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things that I can say right off the bat is um, that pollution is a huge problem in wild fisheries. Uh, And it ranges from oil to microplastics, which plastics do involve, you know, they need oils to be made, but plastics last for an extraordinary long amount of time. But the microplastics that they kind of break down into are almost worse than the larger pieces that they create because of how small they are. And you can actually find them in a lot of wild fisheries, pretty much everything that's in the ocean is going to have microplastics in it at this point, because just, there's just been so much pollution and it doesn't break down into any sort of biodegradable product that it, you know, if you take, if you have the equipment to do so and you analyze pretty much any tissue sample in the ocean, it's going to have microplastics, whether it be from the surface of the ocean to the, you know, the challenger deep in the, or the bottom of the Mariana's trench, like animals, there are going to have some sort of plastic, microplastic residue. I mean, they found plastic bags in the deepest parts of the ocean and that, you know, or like plastic bottles, you know, they've made it down there. It's, that's what it is. And it's terrible to see. But, you know, it's, it's something eye-opening that can, you know, make people change their lives for the better and also change their lives for the betterment of the planet. And microplastics are a huge health concern as well um, because they do have health impacts on humans. Um, it's kind of hard to fully understand the impacts because, you know, a lot of these studies that are done with them take a long time to... Uh, you know, produce results. But um, oil itself, you know, we all know is very toxic. But when I was at school uh, at the University of Miami, uh, they did a lot of research in the aquaculture facility that I worked at and volunteered at. And uh, they did studies on the impact of oil spills because of the BP oil spill in the Gulf, you know, um, on the the cardiac development of young mahi-mahi, which are a very uh sustainably caught fish for the most part. They grow really, really quickly. They reproduce very often. And it's very hard to overfish that species um, just because of their life cycle and how fast they grow and how much they reproduce. Um, uh, how they're caught obviously depends on the, you know, changes their sustainability. But um research has been done to show that even one single drop of oil Uh, coming in contact with one egg can drastically reduce the likelihood of that one egg to survive. And if it does hatch out properly, it's cardiac development is very skewed. And the likelihood of that fish to survive to maturity is lowered by a significant amount, which is kind of crazy to think about because the amount of oil that's spilled out into the Gulf of Mexico, or Any oil spill that ever happened, you know, it's not isolated to just Mahi. It's likely any fish or any organism that was in that water, whether it be the microscopic zooplankton or phytoplankton, like all those diatoms and all that stuff that those fish rely on to eat it all, it all is related. And, you know, ultimately those are what the fish that those are what we eat, you know, and then accumulates. So. That's actually one of the big reasons why aquaculture has grown a lot in years recently. As I mentioned, uh, the water quality a lot of times is actually better than it is in wild fisheries. And that's because people can purify water better than nature can itself in a lot of cases. Um, Obviously, you know, people are not able to fully defeat Mother Nature. That will never, ever happen. You know, there's a reason why things are. But um, You know, fish grown in aquaculture settings, you know, are almost largely entirely free of those pollutants that you can, that are just out there in the ocean. Um, You know, people don't fish from areas that are actively extremely polluted, but there's always some level of pollution. But when people can control the water quality and they can filter that water down to, you know, basically being almost pure water you know, that's something that's going to make a huge health improvement on the fish themselves, but also the people who rely on those food sources, you know, for their survival or when they go out to eat, you know, there's a reason why aquaculture seafood is probably one of the healthiest things you can eat aside from straight plants, you know, Um, it's because of the, the technological innovations that have come a long, long way and the benefits it has for people too.
0: That was such a wonderful answer. Thank you so much, Ryan. We're, we're almost out of time here, but before oh. I let you go, what other, what kind of final thoughts, what other, what other like things about aquaculture would you like to share with, uh, the nature lovers?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, the biggest thing about aquaculture I would say is that there's a lot of, uh, kind of negative press that's out there. Um, a lot of people, uh, whether they're misinformed or they just don't know. Um, there are aquaculture places that do uh, culture fish and seafood um, in ways that aren't really the best for the environment. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that all aquaculture or all or all fisheries, for that example, either. Just because some people uh, or some places or some you know groups don't do it perfectly, doesn't mean that it's not worth investing in or you know spending your time on. Um, The biggest thing is just making sure that if you want to make an impact in that sector, you put the time and effort into it, you know, simply, you know, as I said before, you know, there's apps out there, there's certification sites. So you don't have to do the work yourself. Other people have done it for you. Um, And the biggest thing is, you know, if you feel if you feel bad or you worry about your impact, you can always say no, Uh, you just not eat seafood. I personally, I love seafood, but if I don't feel comfortable in knowing that what I want or what to eat or what I was going to order at a restaurant or something, if I don't know where it's from or I can't be certain, I just order something else or I get something else, Um, you know, the biggest it's, it's like buying a car. You have to go in there prepared to say no almost um, because if you set your heart on it, you know, you have to be willing to change. Um, willingness to change is always, uh, always a good thing. So don't discount, you know, op culture, fish or fisheries, just because, uh, there's, there, you hear bad things, um, you know, look into it yourself. And, you know, there's a lot of places that have done the work for you to help, help make you make the right choice and, uh, just be willing to, you know, put the effort in because, you know, even if you want to eat seafood, you know, simply eating the bottom of the food chain, you know, just any sort of clam, oysters, mussels, you know, those, actual, those are organisms that actually improve water quality in areas that they're farmed because of the way that they feed, they filter feed and they clean the water. So those are, and those are almost entirely farmed, uh, you know, seafood products. So if you really are worried about, you know, oh, I don't know, I can't trust this salmon, You can always fall back on, you know, this, you know, the scallops or the clam, clam pasta or whatever, you know, oysters, you know, Mm -hmm. those, and those are some of my favorite seafoods to eat and stuff like that. You know, there's Mm -hmm. always, there's always an option and there's always a a better choice to make.
0: I love that sentiment there. And again, we're going to be linking the Seafood Watch website in our blog post for this week. Thanks for sharing that resource with us, Ryan. And thanks for being on the Brady Bunch podcast.
3: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed my time. I had had a great time.
0: Yeah, we, we loved having you. So now we'll cut back to the rest of the episode. That was so wonderful. Thank you so much again to Ryan McHugh for being on the podcast. You've been a fan for a while, so I'm really glad to have you on. You've been a friend for a while, even longer. So glad you were here. Ryan did want us to mention that there are a bunch of different species that you know have been attempted for aquaculture pretty much every fish species you can imagine uh that have that are eaten at least have been attempted for aquaculture and uh all of that research is still being done so definitely do your own research uh in terms of you know more information and Ryan has actually provided us a bunch of resources to share so check out our blog post for all of that information with our main topic out of the way let's plug our social meds Matt where can you be found on the instagram
1: Y'all can find me at yeah, Matt Valga, M A T T Vs, and Victor A L I G A. I'll be doing some sciencey stuff on there. In fact, I'm probably going to be posting some pictures of moths that I've pinned now because I'm getting really proud of them. It's almost an art form. And I got some really cool ones that are coming up some Sphinx moths, some Dry Camp Arubicunda, that's the rosy Maple Moth. We got some good stuff, and I'm really excited to share it.
2: You can also find me on Instagram at the Britney underscore bunch T H E B R I T T A N Y underscore B is in Brichter, U N C H. Matt knows I I do it lovingly.
0: Does he? Does he know that? Do you can I care? also find me on Instagram at cj.greco. Greco. That's cj. co And I have no idea what I'm going to post this week. <laughs> Maybe I will post something interesting. Maybe I'll just post a selfie. Who's to say? You know what you can do, though, this week? You can visit our collective Instagram, the Pretty Bunch Podcast, uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Instagram and Facebook. And um, we post all kinds of good stuff infographics, cut clips, um, teasers, all kinds of good stuff. You can also visit our website, thebredymunchpodcast.com, to visit our merch store or to visit our Patreon. If you visit our Patreon, a couple different tiers of support as well as um you get a shout out here on the podcast if you sign up to our patreon so for just three dollars a month you can get a shout out here on the podcast and with that we get a shout out to our good friend gabe onderlay thank you so much gabe for continuing to be a patreon if you can't support us financially which is totally understandable what we ask is that you share this podcast with a friend tell one friend about the birdie bunch we would love it and we can grow our nature lover team If you like, I don't want to tell anybody, I am so shy, I can't talk to anyone, I'm so scared. That's okay, too. You can leave us a review. If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it out here on the podcast. We have no new reviews this week, but go ahead and leave us a review. We would love to see it, love to hear it. With all of that out of the way, thank you so much for listening to this week of the Pretty Bunch Podcast. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll catch you next time.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast.
0: We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer.
2: The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.